I mean, if you think we're dealing with people who would happily sacrifice their grandchildren for a buck, I mean, that's what climate change is all about, then they're hardly going to sort of, you know, say, oh, I see you sat in a road, I'm going to change my mind. So, you know, I think we need to be know, we need to be clear about what we're up against here. But, you know, we're fighting for the future of a decent civilization, so it's worth it. Welcome to Sustainable 131. Welcome yourself to Sustainable 131, you cheeky little monkey. We are your friendly weekly environment podcast, all about people and the planet. And why, despite everything being all a little bit last minute, we can still... Have a chuckle about it every now and then, don't we? All? Last minute in the planetary sense. In the planetary sense. <laughs> okay. Not in the preparation sense. Okay. Um, you, uh, right, good. What are we doing this week then? We are speaking to somebody excellent. Ooh. Uh, we yeah. are speaking to a Green MEP who is a member of the European Parliament, if you didn't know. Yup. Yup. MEP and Yup. And that Green MEP is Molly Scott Cato. Who's she, oh? Well, she is an exceptional person. She is quite involved in Extinction Rebellion that we talked about recently, so we're going to talk to her about that. Uh, she's quite involved in Brexit and trying to stop it because, uh, you know... Doing quite well. <laughs> losing a... Yeah, yeah, it's going better than than anybody thought. Uh, and, uh, you know, but obviously as a member of European Parliament, has a, has a heavy interest in that, so we talked to all about that and what she's trying to do to stop it. And she's very interested in, like, economy stuff, but green. Now, we had to whisper, didn't we? Oh, yeah, yes. yeah. So we, a uh, slight admin error, of, we ended up meeting Molly in a library. Yes. Um, <laughs> in a Quaker library, yes. which was extremely nice um, and lovely and cosy. And it was like a big cuddle, the whole thing, but a quiet cuddle. So we were all whispery, and there were some kind of... <laughs> Bob Fleming types in the background who were rustling newspapers and hacking up a lung every now and then. But anyway, it's great, and at least one person involved in this interview actually does a cry. Uh, just the usual disclaimer before any of that, we do work for environmental charities, don't we all? Yes. Yes, but these are very much our own views, and predominantly Molly's views. So if you've got any beef with anything, what you hear, take it up with me or Roll or Molly, but not with anyone for whom we work. Yes? Absolutely. And for God's sake, keep the noise down. Shh. Shh. So, hello, Molly. Hello. Hello. Um, thank you very, very much for coming to speak to us. Um, for those people listening who don't know who you are, would you mind saying who you are? <laughs> so, I'm Molly Scott Cato. I'm now the Green MEP for South West England and Gibraltar. And before being elected, I was Professor of Green Economics at Roehampton University. So, I've spent about, well, I've spent 30 years in the Green Party and probably 20 of those years thinking about the economy and environment. And how's, how's the environment going? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you could say I've been a dismal failure and all of that. I mean, I suppose 
the only thing to be said in my defence is that I did 20 years ago start realising that it was the problems with the environment were coming from the economy and so trying to make that connection. I think more people are doing that now and that's a good thing but we've also learned that the economy and its current structure and the vested interests are very powerful and we're sort of in the end game of that now, you know, battling the fossil fuels, battling against destruction of habitats and so on and if we don't succeed with that then, you know, we're really screwed. So, yeah, I feel I was onto that battle early and uh, done my best with it but I'm not saying by any means we've had a great deal of success. Although, yeah, we have had certain successes and I work a lot on the sustainable finance agenda and that I think is quite a powerful agenda for change. As a former professor of green economics, I'm delighted to see that this agenda now has almost universal support, not only in the Parliament but also from the Commission who have made this a priority agenda as well as from world leaders, especially President Macron of France. So in terms of, of where we are now, um, you've been very prominent in your support for uh, Extinction Rebellion. Um, and uh, I mean, there's an, a kind of an obvious um, angle there which you draw out in, in some of the things you've written about the fact that you're a lawmaker, um, but you think the situation now uh, demands, well, uh, deserves a bit of law-breaking. So how, how does that work? What's, what's changed um, that has got you to that position? Well, obviously, when you're representing other people and you believe in democracy, then you have a particular responsibility because you have a particular way of making change. And I represent five million people and they've given me their trust in making change through the democratic political process. But I suppose the reason I felt it was justified to become a lawbreaker as well as a lawmaker is that um, our democracy is not functioning very well. And there's quite a few reasons for that, but obviously a key one for me is the fact that the people that vote Green do not get fair representation at Westminster. So I'm an MEP, the Green Party has three MEPs, but we have only one MP, although by rights we would have at least 20, even on current sort of voting levels. Um, so we have an unfair voting system and all the people that vote Green in the South West have nobody representing them. I mean, there's 55 MPs in the patch I represent, and before the last election, 53 of them were... Tory and now it's um, 50 so <clears throat> about half the people in that area vote Conservative and yet nearly all of them are represented by a Conservative and those people, a lot of them have fossil fuel interests, they've opposed renewable energy across my patch and it's clear that the democratic system for effecting change in the area of climate and energy is just not working so that's why I think it feels like you can't just go and break the law because it feels like an emergency or you feel under pressure, but I think you can when the political systems are simply not working as they should be. Thank you for what is just the beginning Yeah, I think obviously the point is uh, people are offering to, to use themselves and use their bodies in defence of what they believe in. Um, but it's also important to get the strategy right with that. And, you know, what, what are you going to do? I, I mean, I think you could go down the path of, like, thousands and thousands of people being arrested for obstruction until the prisons are overflowing, which would put pressure on the system. They seem to be arresting people for quite a short time, and I think we're all aware of the fact that there isn't any space in prisons anyway, so this could actually be quite an effective strategy, but we haven't really done that yet. And the other strategy is to take a route where you actually literally operate like a lever on the system you know you stand in front of the coal train like they did at Drax you know you stop them actually taking the coal into the power station or you close an airport or you stop them building the roads like they did in the 1980s so um, personally I think that's a better way to go and I think if people went that way like the fracking protesters at Preston New Road they would get put in 
jail seriously and they will get put on trial. And then you have the show trials, then you have the the greater level of publicity. And I think if you if you think about the sorts of movements that have inspired this Extinction Rebellion, you know, like the civil rights movement in the US or like Gandhi, both of those chose very good symbolic targets, but they also chose targets that would make an economic impact, like Gandhi and the Salt Marches, and there were also thousands and thousands of people involved. So, you know, you have to, if you're going to try and make change in this way, it has to be on a big scale, because the state will ignore and sideline for as long as possible, and we're talking about seriously powerful vested interests here. I mean, if you think we're dealing with people who would happily sacrifice their grandchildren for a buck, I mean, that's what climate change is all about, then they're hardly going to sort of, you know, say, oh, I see you sat in a road, I'm going to change my mind. So, you know, I think we need to be know, we need to be clear about what we're up against here. But, you know, we're fighting for the future of a decent civilization, so it's worth it. And, and who are those powerful vested interests? Because... I, I feel like often that phrase is, is said, but, but without naming names. It's um, fossil fuel interest. It's the sort of fake think tanks they fund at 55 Tufton Street. It's the people who they give money to when they're standing for election. You know, it's, it's every MP in the House of Commons that took money from fossil fuel interests, which is quite a large number of people. You know, it's that nexus of power between the old, dirty energy companies, politicians, and then the way they influence media as well which they're very deliberate about and you know that that's something I've worked on quite hard to say that you shouldn't have um, think tanks well, they're not think tanks they're pressure groups they're sort of lobbyists paid for by foreign billionaires we shouldn't have them on the BBC you know wh- why are we giving them airtime I mean they can pay for advertising if they must but I shouldn't be paying my license fee to hear you know um, basically very bogus self-interested destructive information from very rich people that will only serve a tiny proportion of the population. That just shouldn't be happening. The reason I installed this very expensive device is because I am expecting an extremely important report from the Galveston Institute of Oil Technology any moment now. Do you think you do need to hit people in their pockets? you need to disrupt economic power, economic interests, to get anything really happening on this? It's all very well saying a thing is a problem, but until you make people with a lot of money have less money somehow, no-one's going to pay any attention. I'm, I'm not actually a big believer in, in transactional framings of political change. You know, I think... I mean, obviously, when I seek election, bread-and-butter issues matter, but I think... We're in a time now where people are, are kind of moving beyond that and they're focused on much more fundamental aspects of life. And, um, you know, if we think about what happened with the Gilets Jaunes people in France, effectively they... Well, it's very interesting to think who's behind that, you know, because they're obviously being hijacked to some extent by probably far-right groups, certainly <coughs> violent groups. Um, but essentially it was Macron's political mistake to introduce a tax which would mostly impact on poor people if he'd gone through the route of introducing a frequent flyer levy so for example you know you could have one flight a year at the current rate of tax but then if you fly more than once it starts to become extremely expensive that would have had much more impact on climate emissions because obviously aviation is hugely impactful compared to driving a car although driving a car is not brilliant either um and it would have, since 70% of flights are taken by the richest 10% of people, then, you know, that would have been a socially just way of achieving his objectives more efficiently. Because he's a right-wing politician, you know, he, he just didn't think down that route. And so I think, I mean, most people will benefit from the change we're bringing about. Green politics is, is 
about social justice and environmental justice hand in hand. And you can't affect environmental justice without social justice anyway. So um, if, you know, the sort of policies I'm talking about introducing would be negative for the super rich and the global elites and those citizens of nowhere who, you know, believe in a dome future and are trashing everything... But uh, and maybe what's a, what's a dome future? You know, like Mad Max, you know, like everything falls apart, but they're fine because they can afford a place in the dome. Oh, I see. That's, right. that's how they think. Yeah, all or, the tech billionaires buying up bits in New Zealand. Yeah, for, or forward to Mars, cosmic. you know, that kind of thing. I yeah. mean, it's mostly delusional, but uh, nonetheless, that's how they think. So, you know, but that's a tiny proportion of the population, and so for all, my, and then maybe ten percent of people would pay a bit more, and everybody else would be better off. So, even if you did take take a transactional framing, it's you know, the vast majority of people will, will be better off because this world is, is grossly unjust. And it's that ability of very rich people to, um, you know, live in a way that's incredibly environmentally destructive that's the biggest problem we've got. So if we started at the top and moved down, um, you know, we would it would be most, the most efficient way of tackling our environmental crises as well. What are a couple of things that you think should be done about it then? What's the, what's the Molly manifesto for oh, God, just tackling so... vested interests? <laughs> there's just so many things. Well, so one thing is limiting political donations and making lobbying and donations to political parties much more transparent. I think we need a, a serious review and investigation of how people are being influenced politically. So that's about the fake think tanks. It's about the, the, the um, dark money that's funding our politics now. But it's also about how social media is used, you know, how disinformation is used, who's really behind those campaigns. I mean, we've got a report coming out in January looking at Facebook and um, obviously there's big inquiries now into the way Facebook's being used, both in Canada and in the House of Commons. And we had inquiries in the European Parliament as well. Um, And it's, you know, it's a sewer, basically, what's going on there. The, the, The business model is all about just getting the advertising in they haven't paid any attention to the impact of that it's clearly um you know distorted the brexit referendum it's distorted the trump election it's distorted the election in brazil there's all sorts of places where facebook has now been used to well it was whatsapp in brazil but obviously that's owned by them as well um so and the obviously then the the point is to make a proposal about how how their influence on politics should be limited so I suppose, you know, you're asking me how to change economic things and I'm coming back with political responses, but that's because I very deeply believe that people are voting against their economic interests because they are being deliberately given disinformation. So we haven't spoken to an MEP before on this podcast. Um, what, what's it like? Like, I, mean, I, I have so little understanding of what really goes on in, in European Parliament. Well, they just go, or, go around straightening bananas, don't they? That's exactly, yeah. In, you know, inventing rules that no one can name that are definitely something I want to vote against. And, and yeah, no, what, what's it like? And what's it like now? I mean, how, how are you approaching the March 29th <laughs> kind of game-changing deadline? It's an absolutely brilliant job, being an MEP. I mean, the strange thing for me is it could never have happened. I mean, it might never have happened for me because as a Green, you know, it's quite unlikely to get elected. And I'm just so glad it did because so many of the things that I've learned and skills I've developed through my life are incredibly useful for what I'm doing now. And I really didn't know that was the case until I got to be in this job. So I'm so thankful that I've been able to do that because otherwise I'm have, I wonder if I could have done that. But um, so... 
what makes it a great job is it's very varied. You have real legislative power. Our MPs effectively are doing scrutiny. That's all they're doing. So in, that's, in the UK. In the UK, yeah. yeah. So you see them hacking off at government. It's, it's, that's, the, that's what their job is to do. The government puts something up there, MPs hack off at it, basically. And they can put amendments in and they can put forward legislation, but it never goes anywhere. So as MEPs, our job is to, to take the draft laws that come from the Commission and to amend them and change them. We have a cross-party way of working, but it's, it's a very consensual way of working. So at the moment, we're just in the last phases of this because we're trying to keep the right wing on board. In, in Britain, what you do is you try to get to 50% and then you say, we won, you lost, that's it. You know? But in the European Parliament, you try and keep everybody in the compromise all the time, which is a, a really amazing thing. You want that's 100%. remarkably grown up. <laughs> <laughs> like very... a slightly childish system in the UK. <laughs> Holding the debate... After no fewer than 164 colleagues have taken the trouble to contribute, will be thought by many members of this House to be deeply discourteous. That is what makes it a totally amazing job, that you are working on really detailed legislative stuff. And, you know, I find it really intellectually challenging as a professor of green economics, and it's using all my resources, and, I'm, yeah, I really enjoy that. So that's the... That's the legislative part. And then the other part of it is like the sort of European side of it, which is also an amazing thing. I mean, I'm quite a hobbity person. You know, I would probably have never left Stroud if this hadn't happened to me because I love being in Stroud and I would venture out and then go back to Stroud. But, you know, I've been forced to leave my comfort zone and live in Brussels, and um, which is a lovely place to live and very underestimated, actually. But, yeah, so the European part is mixing with all these people from different countries you know you're in a multi-language zone all the time trying to work out you know what the hell the belgians mean with their jokes which is impossible <laughs> it's impossible i don't get it at all they have a really interesting sense of humor but it's incomprehensible and the germans you know where they have to say i just made a joke <laughs> <laughs> amazing that was a funny <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> too much to do listen don't mention the war i mentioned it once but i think i got away with it all right so <laughs> the point of the european institutions is so that you know all these different people you understand their culture you know, you've eaten rice pudding with a Portuguese person, you're not going to go to war with them again. You know, you're not going to be able to be told they wear horns. And uh, it's interesting, quite often I look around and I think, oh, I'm the only Brit in this room. And I really didn't notice for a long time. You know, you're just, you're part of a European system just trying to work for all the citizens of Europe. And that's, it's a very inspiring thing. And I'm I'm speaking as somebody who would have voted to leave the European Union probably 15 years ago, you know, so. Wow, why? Yeah. Well, for the reasons that Corbyn would still vote to leave the European yeah. Union, in my view, um, I basically, like him, believed that it was a kind of bosses club and that, you know, the, 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 the problems with the way the economy works, corporate power and, and neoliberal economics were ingrained in the European project. But I know now that that's wrong. And also, more importantly, the idea that you can tackle these very powerful forces in one country is just absurd. I mean, maybe in 1950 that made sense. It just doesn't make sense now. I mean, I work on tax avoidance, for example. We need global agreement to stop people shuffling their money around to, to minimise their tax um, payments. Uh, whereas, you know, to think that we could do that as one country is ridiculous. Even Europe isn't really big enough, but we can achieve some things working across Europe. So and the same with climate change, you know, the same with fisheries. Most of the big problems we face need international cooperation and Europe is the best example of international cooperation it hasn't gone far enough but it's the best example so far and the other reason is that um, 
the Greens have been really successful at colonising the single market. So when you say single market, you think, oh, that sounds like a sort of Tory capitalist project, which it actually was, you know, conceived by Margaret Thatcher and her people, basically, and set up by British Tories, which is why it's totally absurd that they're suggesting we leave it. But since they set it up, you know, we've been very effective at at, at sort of colonising and transforming it. So, for example, you know, if you have a a single market and it's about food, then you can insist that you don't have certain types of chemical in your food. And if we put that forward as Greens in the Parliament, it's very difficult for, for socialist people to say, no, you should eat that thing that's, you know, destroying your hormone system or something. They can't do it. So once you've got Greens there proposing something, then, you know, it's... It's not easy to win on those things, but it's it's quite easy. And we have, I think, been incredibly effective at transforming the single market. So it's now a force for good rather than a sort of just a system that makes it easier for business to function. And that that's something, you know, well, whichever way. I'm, I'm still trying to stop Brexit. But if Brexit happens, any route forward, I think that's what we need to fight to keep. And if we're going to still have those single market rules... It just is illogical to not be part of the system that makes those rules. The result showed that after the referendum, the Conservative Party can come together. And under my leadership, it will. <laughs> how, does, how does Brexit prospect thereof make you feel on a kind of day-to-day level? I, 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 Look, I, I would get... like to have a therapy session about this, but I'm probably <laughs> not right now. <laughs> Feel free. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how much use will be, but um, are, are you are you angry or sad or frustrated about it or optimistic? Actually, I, even I feel um, I feel bad, really bad right now because my fate is being decided by people at Westminster who are ill-informed and poorly motivated. What I see at Westminster is some just ignorance, some deliberately created ignorance by political parties, and a lot of party interest being put before the country interest. And there's I try very hard to do what I can about that. For example, when the Labour whips were saying that you couldn't be in the customs union and the single market at the same time, which was just totally wrong, we had Barnier in our group meeting. So I did that thing. I bet you've wanted to do this loads of times in your life where you say, I'll just bring Mr Barnier into this discussion. <laughs> and so I could do that. So I got a picture of me with Barnier, sort of saying, you know, and say, can I tweet that you said we can do? He said, yeah, sure, go ahead. So I did that. Um, but, you know, that's the level at which you have to try and intervene in a debate where people are not only telling each other lies but also telling each other lies to help their party their career when the state when the future of the country is at stake i mean that makes me feel so furious quite honestly so i feel angry a lot i feel sad a lot and um just at the moment i just feel eroded by all the lies i mean you know i was brought up not i mean my mum had two rules never tell a lie never cross a picket line that does tell you a lot about me actually (laughs) but um yeah so you know Lies, I find them really tiring, exhausting and depressing. I mean, my children say to me, I wish you hadn't told me to not lie, Mum. Sometimes it's really useful to tell a lie. We're all terrible liars in my family, so perhaps I'm in the wrong career. But anyway, um, so just the daily grind of deceit really wears me down. And, uh, well, I'm looking forward to my Christmas holiday. But anyway, things are looking better than they were. I mean, I've been campaigning for the People's Vote for quite a long time. Um, <coughs> working with other MEPs to try and help people get you know, a clear understanding of, of what the implications are. People's Vote actually crossed over into the positive territory in political betting last week, so that was quite cheering. So more people think it's more likely to happen than not? More people are putting bets on it not happening than it happening, which 
was the first time since the referendum. So there's, you know, there's something real about where people are putting their money, isn't there? Absolutely. <laughs> so how do you feel about, about presumably not having that job anymore? I mean, let's say it, it does happen and, and there are no more UK MEPs. Is that right? That, that presumably is what's going to happen, yeah. right? Don't worry, with Nadine Dorries in not knowing that, so, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's amazing. <laughs> was, what was that? Oh, she, but she, I'm sure you know we're close friend. to France, don't you? So. Yes, I've, I've heard that, yeah. Um, so I'm one up she on said, Dominic Raab. No, she she said an what an outrage it was that we wouldn't have MEPs during the transition. Incidentally, the UKIP MEPs are trying to get our, you know, time of mandate extended so they can carry on claiming all the expenses no really yeah i know look my job i mean i'm we're i'm in the sort of eye of this storm i've got particular knowledge that's useful and we're in a real crisis as a country so my job right down to the wire is to do everything i can to stop this calamity so i if i thought about what i was going to do afterwards that would diminish my energy for that struggle wouldn't it so i just i'm not thinking about it i don't want to think about it and the only thing I think is, I find it hard to imagine I will want to continue to live in Britain if we go ahead with Brexit, because imagine waking up every morning, the latest bit of shit's hitting the fan, you know, and you're just thinking, oh, I told you that was going to happen. I'm going to be bitter every morning, aren't I? So that's all I've thought, but I have no plans, and I won't make plans until April. April, April Fool's Day, April I shall start planning. <laughs> the sun has risen on an independent, united kingdom. And just look at it, even the weather's improved. Shove it up your ass. So you're a green economist, professor of green economics, is that? Yes. That, yeah, very good. We're talking to a professor, oh. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> what is green economics? Why, why, can't, why aren't you happy with normal economics? We're going to green it up for. So it's really about what the economy's for. I think that's the most important thing. So the last book I wrote before I was elected as an MEP was called The Bioregional Economy, and it was trying to work out how to get the best amount of happiness for human beings and other species, actually, um, for the minimum amount of resources and energy. That's what I think a green economist would do. To be honest with you, it's hard to understand why normal economics doesn't do that, but it's not really designed for achieving the best for the majority you know it's a system that works for people that own capital basically that's the way that the conventional economy is designed and then there's a whole sort of knowledge system that lies behind that including the way economics is taught in universities so people don't challenge that so there's a particular way that economic life is conceived markets solve problems for example you know there's a system of mantras really markets solve problems we're all you know rational agents all of these things are nonsense, incidentally, but when you study economics, this is what you get taught. And that has a particular effect because it sort of filters out um, warm-hearted, you know, normal human beings. Oh dear, I shouldn't really have said that. I'm slagging off all economists now. But, you know, I mean, when I first encountered economics myself, I gave it up after three months because it was so mad. I just thought, God, no way. And uh, then re I realised the impact it had, and I thought, oh, God, I'm going to have to learn all about that and come back to it. But I think an awful lot of people just get turned off like that, and so you're getting the wrong type of people making these huge, impactful decisions that affect everybody's life. And so, you know, for example, I mean, the whole fetishization of growth thing, the whole focus on quantity rather than quality, nobody does that in their everyday life. If you said to somebody, you can have as much, of you, as, much as you like as this thing, you'd say, no, you know, I'd rather have a better one, I'd rather have less. You know, that we do understand that limits have value in our everyday lives, but the economy, the capitalist economy, will not understand that. You know, it grows out of control. Um, and 
I think that that concept of the rational economic man is really important as well because it suggests that you make your decisions on the basis of utility maximization, another bizarre economics concept. What does that mean? Well, I mean, what does it mean? You know, if you, if you say, you know, basically it means you'll get the most stuff, I think, doesn't it? You know, but if you put that back to a conventional economist, they say it all depends what you mean by utility, but it doesn't really. I mean, utility is very narrowly defined. So it's assumed that you're trying to accumulate maximum material wealth and that's your main motivation. Nobody really believes that. If you questioned anybody, they wouldn't believe that. So, you know, money can't buy you happiness. This is what pop songs say. This is the world we really live in. Or love. <laughs> or love, exactly. <laughs> you know, you give people a huge pile of money or love. Everybody's going to say love, right? But e economics says you would take the money. But David's not so sure about this. Anyway, so, so economics assumes human beings are a way that Maybe some economists are, but almost all human beings are not. And then it designs a system to sort of satisfy that person, which is not who we are. And of course it is, I think, important to say that it's a rational economic man as well, because this system is designed by men. You know, if you look at the Bretton Woods conference at the end of the Second World War, where the sort of basic framing of the system was set up, they were all men, they were all white men, they were all white men from... There were some Latin Americans there, but almost all the countries in the world now were colonies at the time. So it's a system that just doesn't serve most people's interests. And this is, you know, why the vast majority, perhaps even as much as 99% of assets in the world are owned by men. So, you know, that, that system is so badly designed. Um, so I think green economics is, its primary motivation is to find a way of making us happy without trashing our planet. And I don't think we can be happy when we're thrashing the planet coming back to the extinction rebellion you know that's part of the point there when you know that species are becoming extinct it just fills you with grief and psychological distress people are in that state because they know we're doing that not not just people like us but people on the bus you know that i t you talk to people they're like yeah you're totally right they are heartbroken about what we're doing to the planet mm. and it's the economic system that's forcing us to do that We're here in a Quaker building, and something you were saying just then made me wonder about whether or not you think inside... What, what is the thing inside you that is sort of driving you on? And do you think, actually, we've all got a little something inside us that's kind of making us go, oh, something's not right mm. here? Yeah, I, I do think that. I mean, the, you know, Quake, the good thing about Quakerism is that it's got an incredibly small theology. It's 42 short paragraphs and then like a little booster paragraph at the end from George <laughs> Fox himself. <laughs> which, yeah. Anyway, one of them does say, rejoice in the splendor of God's continuing creation, which I think is a good thing for us all to bear in mind. But, you know, the, the most important thing in terms of treating other people, and in fact in terms of spiritual life itself, is that we believe that a little bit of God is in everybody or a little bit of the divine is in everybody, however you conceive of God. So this is why you don't have priests because you don't need somebody to sort of tell you or you don't need a book to tell you. Basically, it's about what's in you. It's about responding to that divine spark inside you and maybe also inside frogs and even stones. You know, this is what indigenous people believe. I'm not sure I can get quite as far as stones, but trees, I'd probably go that far. This is why there's a... The other great thing about Quaker belief system is that there are very nice phrases that are very meaningful and weighty to express, you know, how you should act in life. And there's one which is acting under concern. And that means when you are responding to this kind of inner impulse. And 
oh, I feel tearful thinking about it, but if you're acting under concern, your fellow Quakers must support you, even if they totally disagree with you. And I've had this when I refused to fill in the census. It split my meeting, and half of them really disagreed with me, but they all completely supported me, which is an amazing feeling, and I'm getting the same sort of support over the Extinction Rebellion. I know some of them think it's completely wrong, but they genuinely believe I'm acting under concern and therefore they have to come in and support. And, yeah, I mean, politics is an incredibly tough game in some ways. I do love it, but it's very tough. And so it's important to have that spiritual grounding and that support from your spiritual community. It really makes a huge difference. I mean, to know that if I was sitting in jail somewhere, there will be those really good citizens, because they all are, you know, with me. It would be amazing. And it helps me It helps me when, when I'm doing things that are quite... Uh, you know, require courage in my political life generally. So, yeah, I think it's... Well, yeah, anyway, your question was what drives me. I guess it is that, really. But I know we're running out of time, but just to say another thing is, I think all Greeks, I think all economists, actually, and also all politicians are driven by this sense of social justice, whatever that means to them. And we're acting in a way that's unfair to other people in our own society, other people across the world, and other species that we must share this planet with. And so that's what politics has to achieve it has to achieve that radical fairness and i think the bit that the greens contribute is thinking more widely than just our own community molly thank you so much for coming to speak to us and with us today um if people want to follow what you're doing and, and get in touch what's the best way to do that i'm an appallingly prolific tweeter so <laughs> at molly mep will you know get yeah far too much far more than people ever wanted but i've also got a website uh, which you know if, if people put my name into google they'll find that fairly easily i do put lots of stuff on the website thanks very much cheers man. you're welcome so that was nice wasn't it dave oh, you're still all quiet Oh, yeah, sorry. We're not in the library We're anymore. Library. Oh. Shh, shh. Uh, oh, I really liked that. I really liked Molly. Weren't she lovely? I yeah. really liked having a nice chat about feelings and stuff. It was nice. I'm, Quaker. I'm going to be a Quaker. Quaker. I want to be a Quaker. You get to sit in a library and you get to have bearded men read the newspaper around you and you get to act under concern. Oh, which basically means, as far as I can work out, you can get the ump about something and no one can tell you to sit down and shut up, which I think is brilliant. <laughs> a bit more of that in my house would be gratefully received. <laughs> it does feel a little bit like a card that you can play, uh, you know, it's just a get out of free jail card, isn't it? Please, please don't put your feet on the table. I'm acting out of concern. Yeah, bloody millennials. Please don't put your feet on the train seats. <laughs> well, I'm acting under concern, actually. No, you're not. You're in <laughs> Anyway. Uh, that, that deteriorated, didn't it? We started <laughs> off saying how wonderful Quakers were. And anyway, no, I, I really enjoyed it. I thought Molly was great and powerful and just... You want more people like that in politics. And wasn't it interesting that she has gone from uh, not really liking Yerp to 
being fully paid up kind of, well, literally, but also, you know, intellectually, <laughs> philosophically paid up member of the Europe is brilliant. We're all understanding each other more. We are learning about each other's cultures. We are collaborating, cooperating. It just goes to show, doesn't it, Ol? If you like go and actually spend some time with the demons, you find they're not demons. They're just Germans. <laughs> different. Uh, right. You can get in touch with us. Let us know what you thought of the show. Uh, we are on Twitter at the oh, Babble God. Wagon. You can email us. This hello. is why I do this bit at sustainababble.fish or you can find us on Facebook just search sustainababble and if you wish to contribute to the ongoing running costs of your esteemed organ uh, the babble <laughs> uh, then uh, please do go to www.patreon.com slash sustainababble and chuck in a couple of quid thanks thank you and thank you very very much to the magnificent Dickie Moore who does the music that begins and ends and intertwinkles this podcast thank you too to the outrageously brilliant Arthur Stovall who has designed all the artwork that's on our website and podcasty things and is also on our merch T-shirts as T-shirts what you can still probably just about under the wire if you get on it right now get in time for Christmas buy T-shirts for Christmas yes come on can you think of a better present no no neither can I and speaking of Christmas all we shall be back next week with Sustainable! That's right, it's our regular Christmas episode when we should be decking the halls with boughs of holly and fa la 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 ring until the cows come home. Yes, Ding dong. So we'll join you for that. Don't bother sending us anything for that, uh, for inclusion in that, because we're about to record it immediately after <laughs> we finish speaking here. So, uh, yes, it'll be out of date horrendously uh, and won't contain any of your feedback. So, um, thanks. Great. Well, that's um, that's empowered people to get in touch, hasn't it? All right. We'll see you next week. In the meantime, remember to act under concern. Okay. Bye. Bye. <laughs>